Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Now and Then. I'm Heather Cox Richardson. And I'm Joanne Freeman. As you may have heard, we have a very exciting event on the horizon. Next week, we're hosting another Now and Then live taping. And we're bringing along a good friend of ours, the absolutely brilliant Emory professor, Carol Anderson. Her work is focused on race, and voting, and most recently on the Second Amendment. Tune in on Zoom or Cafe or on Heather's Facebook page on Thursday, October 21st at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll also release the audio version as an episode of Now and Then. RSVP at cafe.com slash live. And one other housekeeping note from the team at Cafe. You can now binge the entirety of Ellie Honig's Up Against the Mob podcast. Just search Up Against the Mob wherever you get your podcasts. Today, Heather and I want to talk about something which in one way or another has been in the news, some of it on the national stage, actually some of it locally as well. The way in which we've been talking about it to each other is dominance politics or bullying as politics. In one way or another, we're talking about a style of politics that is really in mode right now, particularly among the Republican Party. What we want to talk about today is what that means, how that works, what can we learn from its use in history about the dynamics of it working and about ways into and out of the dilemmas that it causes. And part of what set us off this week has to do with something that Senate Majority Leader Charles Schumer said uh, just a few days ago, I think, that um, caused an interesting reaction. This really jumped out to me because if you remember last week, what was at stake in the country was whether or not the United States Congress would vote to raise the debt ceiling, which would enable us to pay for spending that had been accumulated in the past, including about $7.8 trillion that had been run up under the Trump administration. And the debt ceiling was put in place in 1917 as a way to make it easier to borrow. And it's been raised dozens of times since then, including including three times during the previous administration. And bipartisan in most of those cases, right? It's been raised in a bipartisan manner. Because defaulting on that debt is essentially for the country to commit financial suicide and and all the things we've talked about in the past that would come from that. But what was really interesting about the way that the media talked about it and the way that pundits talked about it was they talked about it as if it was a democratic problem. When, in fact, the Republicans were simply saying, no, we're not going to have anything to do with this. We're, we're just not going to play. And so the Democrats finally said, OK, we'll do it on our own, even though you people ran up almost $8 trillion of this in a $28 trillion debt. We'll go ahead and do it ourselves. And then the Republicans filibustered it and said, no, no, you can't do it that way either. The Democrats go ahead and on a straight party line, that is only Democrats vote to raise that debt ceiling. 
They go ahead and they buy the country until about December 3rd to go ahead and figure out a way to raise the debt ceiling more permanently. And so what happens? So following the agreement on raising the debt ceiling, Majority Leader Schumer gave a speech on the House floor, and he basically criticizes the Republicans for the brinksmanship, the game playing that they showed on this issue. And these are his words. Leader McConnell and Senate Republicans insisted they wanted a solution to the debt ceiling, but said, Republicans played a dangerous and risky partisan game, and I am glad that their brinksmanship did not work. For the good of America's families, for the good of our economy, Republicans must recognize in the future they should, that they should approach fixing the debt limit in a bipartisan way. Now, I will point out that's a statement of fact. Schumer says this is what the Republicans did. They sort of had this risky reconciliation process that put a lot of things at risk and the brinkmanship didn't work. So, Heather, what was the response to that statement? This is what made us want to do this episode. The response was that McConnell came out absolutely swinging. And now there's a number of reasons he might have done that. He's actually not operating from a position of strength right now in a number of different ways. But he says, last night, in a bizarre spectacle, Senator Schumer exploded in a rant that was so partisan, angry, and corrosive that even Democratic senators were visibly embarrassed by him and for him. This tantrum encapsulated and escalated a pattern of angry incompetence from Senator Schumer. And then he goes on to say, this is in a letter to President Biden, I am writing to make it clear that in light of Senator Schumer's hysterics, important word there, and my grave concerns about the ways that another vast, reckless, partisan spending bill would hurt Americans and help China, I will not be party to any future effort to mitigate the consequences of democratic mismanagement. Now, what jumps out at you there is that the Republicans did everything they possibly could to make it almost impossible to pass the raising of the debt ceiling and to throw the country into default. That's not negotiable. That's actually what happened. Schumer said, hey, this is what happened. And I'm glad it didn't work. That's that's the extent of that statement. And McConnell comes back with, this is a bizarre spectacle. It is hysterics. It is, you know, look at how, you know, we had this moment, and this is actually how a lot of the media portrayed it. We had this moment in which we were all getting along so nicely, and now he's gone ahead and thrown a monkey wrench into that, and I'm not going to play anymore. The striking thing about that, then, is if you're talking about ranting and, and hysterics and, and pumping up the emotion, that's coming out of McConnell's statement. That's really not coming out of what Schumer is saying. So he's basically very upset that Schumer just made a blunt, basic statement of fact about what happened. He doesn't like that they were called out. This reminded me overwhelmingly of the kind of material that Joanne has studied in the 1850s, because what we have at stake here is a kind of bullying politics, violent politics, dominant politics, in which there are rhetorical roles that come to mirror actual political roles in our society. And they're characterized, first of all, by this bullying and bluster saying, you know, I'm going to act in a certain way. And the expectation that the people on the other side will, in fact, apologize for things like stating basic facts. 
Precisely. So so there's one side that rants and rages and waves their fists around and, and plays the political game by those rules. They do so in a sense because they can rely on the fact that the other side is going to uphold rules and be shocked by it and do all of the things that will keep an institution at least semi-functional and will allow the people who are doing the bullying to perform as they wish. So there's like a, an imbalance of power that becomes a balance of power, but one side is is flaunting that power and the other side is sort of tap dancing to keep things going. And part of that is, first of all, what we've come to know as gaslighting, and I want to pick that up again, the idea that you're misrepresenting something that actually happened. So who are you going to believe? Me or Schumer? Who are you going to believe? Me or your lion eyes? You know, that, that old uh, <laughs> statement, that old joke. But um, there's also here a reversal of the victim and the offender. So in this telling, Mitch McConnell becomes the victim here even though it was Mitch McConnell and the Republicans who were, in fact, the people who were trying, essentially, to drive the country over a cliff. And what's interesting about this particular moment is the degree to which this flew. It flew in the media. It flew in uh, a number of pundits. Even some Democrats were like, ooh, Charles Schumer shouldn't have spoken up and talked that way. He was literally stating facts. So that made us think about not only the 1850s that I want to come back to, because uh, I think Joanne can tell us a lot about how you get past that moment and what happens in a moment like this, but it does raise the obvious question, when did this kind of dominance politics or bullying politics start in modern America? And there was one swinging neon flag <laughs> over when that happened. Indeed. And it had to do with Ronald Reagan. No. <laughs> I, that's your shocked face, Heather. I can see it. <laughs> right. And so that, in a sense, lays out what we want to talk about today. We want to talk about this kind of bullying politics, this politics of dominance that Reagan helped promote. We want to talk about the dynamics of it and how looking further into the past in the 1850s really shows how it works and what happens when different paths are chosen in response to it. And then we want to come back to the present and talk a little bit about what all of this suggests about the place we are today. One thing that um, Heather and I thought was interesting as we were discussing how we wanted to approach this topic is the fact that we are two woman historians who are approaching this topic and that in some ways this dominance politics or bullying politics is something that women and people of color are particularly sensitive to, that they pick up on in a really kind of guttural, deep kind of a way. In part because we've seen it in our in our lifetimes and our work uh, relationships. And so we certainly saw it coming on. And there's no accident, I think, that it's with the election of Reagan that we start to see a gender gap in the way women versus men vote for or against Republican candidate. I also think it's, you're being modest here, there is one of these two women historians uh, actually wrote a book on this, as I recall. <laughs> The book is about physical violence and threats in the U.S. Congress in the decades leading up to the Civil War. It's it's called The Field of Blood, Violence in Congress and the Road to Civil War. But the dynamic of the book, what it really talks about is Southern members of Congress, both in the House and Senate, using threats and intimidation and violence to silence 
their opposition. And sometimes that's in a party mode and more often than not, particularly over the course of the first half of the 19th century, that means that Southerners are silencing Northerners often on the topic of slavery. And it's outright bullying. They're armed, they're carrying knives and guns, and they're using the logic of standing up and and trying to humiliate Northerners into not standing up at all or backing down, backpedaling, and sitting down rather than objecting to what's going on. And they parade that kind of behavior. And some of them are elected based on that kind of behavior. There's a, a Virginia congressman who at one point is threatened with expulsion. Someone says, you should be expelled. You should be thrown out of here. His name is Henry Wise of Virginia for this kind of behavior. And Wise says, yeah, go ahead because I'm going to be reelected and put right back here because I am here to do this. This is why they put me here. And I will keep on picking fights and I will keep on behaving this way because it's what I was elected to do. And on the other side, you have often Northerners who are doing all that they can to keep things in balance. They're talking about the rules. They're sitting down rather than speaking up. They're backing away. They're refusing to make conflict. They're avoiding topics that might cause trouble. They're doing everything that they can do to keep things functional and balanced. And what you thus see in these decades before the Civil War is very similar to what Heather and I just, you and I just started talking about in the current day, is that one side takes on this role of of bullying and swaggering and acting victimized, right? Because they're only behaving that way because they're being forced to behave that way by the other side. And the other side ends up being responsible for keeping things on track. The dynamic of, if only you would behave, I I wouldn't have to hit you, right? Exactly. Precisely. Like, look what you made me do. You have made me behave this way. And that, in the context you're talking about in the 1850s, it's really interesting, that dynamic where the North keeps hammering on, no, no, this is the way... Congress, you know, we pass laws so that we didn't have to behave this way. And and we we pass laws so that the the South couldn't spread into the Louisiana Purchase. And and all those things get overturned. And the more often the Southerners overturn them, the more they say, we're the ones who really get to define what this country is all about. And the North seems to continue to take it. Right. For quite some time until it doesn't. Right. <laughs> they stop. And that's the rise of the Republican Party in the second half of the 1850s. Those are people, many of whom are elected to Congress, running on this idea that they are going to, and this is their slogan, fight the slave power. Finally, they're going to stand up. Precisely. And they, some of them mean the word fight in a literal kind of a sense. Some of them come to Washington with guns, not necessarily waving them around, but making it clear that they have them, that they are going to fight the slave power. They're not going to be pushed around anymore. They're actually going to stand up for what they are there to do. As they put it, we're a different kind of congressman. We've been put here to stand up and not to sit down. Well, it's not just stand up for what we think. It's also, we are literally going to protect our system. We're going to protect our democratic system that you people are stomping all over. And that's the dynamic that I think is so interesting in our current moment, because we can now go back to the to 1980 and how we started to get, at least where you and I identified, we started to get this idea of this bullying politics during the Reagan revolution, how that morphed into, into popular culture. And now perhaps why people are finally saying, no, no, we need actually to protect the concept of democracy in a level playing field. And that that might require a more aggressive mode of 
of politics. So the, the Northerners in the 1850s are not necessarily running at people with knives and canes and guns, but they're making it clear in a slightly threatening manner. So that when the Northerners insist on reestablishing a level playing field, they want no part of it. They say, you can't, you can't, we can't have equity because we have developed a system where we're in control. Where we're in control, and by your acting that way, you're humiliating us. How dare you treat us How that way? How dare you? How dare you? How dare you have a, a hysterical... Hysterics. Well, he used the word hysterics, which to me, the thing about that word is like, that's, you know, generations of men have yelled that at women when they get upset about something. Like, you're hysterical. You're a hysterical woman. It's like, no, actually, I'm just angry. <laughs> that's a great segue into the 1980 election, because that bullying politics always had a deeply embedded within it a gender dynamic. And it starts to become clear in 1980. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. So first, let's lay out for people who don't remember the people who were operating in the 1980 election. And that is, there were three major candidates. There were a ton of people running initially, but the three, the, the election falls down to three major candidates. And they are Ronald Reagan, who's going to win the election, Jimmy Carter, the Democratic president at the time was running for re-election, and John Anderson. And I want to throw John Anderson in here, who runs as an independent, because a lot of people have now forgotten about Anderson, but he's a really important foil for what we're going to be talking about, because Anderson runs as a very traditional Eisenhower Republican. Moderate. He's a, Well, they call him a moderate, but he's actually the heart of the Republican Party. Oh, yeah, but in that context. And Reagan comes sort of as a wrecking ball from the right. And although he becomes Mr. Republican, in fact, he and the kind of politics and the kind of language that he embraces are really quite counter to what the Republicans have been since World War II. So Anderson is the much more traditional Republican candidate. I mean, I suspect I even know people who probably voted for him. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm such a jerk. Well, no, but I, I thought I was being so strategic. I really did. It was like, I, I dislike Reagan so much. I'm going to register Republican and vote for Anderson, which on so many levels makes no sense. But I thought I was being so savvy, so politically smart. You're being very gracious and not throwing back at me that I didn't even vote in that election. So, 
because I thought nobody ever, I mean, the election was so obvious that nobody would ever need my vote because, of course, nobody would elect Ronald Reagan, which shows exactly (laughs) that I went into the right (laughs) profession, didn't I? But so you got these three people running, Anderson running as a traditional Republican, Reagan coming in from the right, and Carter going ahead and trying to argue for a continuation of what was essentially a a bit of a pared down, but a kind of a New Deal Democrat position. All right. So really interestingly, right from the get-go, Reagan is going to employ this kind of bullying politics that we've been talking about. I think we need to preface that by saying that very shortly after he got the nomination in July of 1980, the Ku Klux Klan endorsed him. So what we're going to be talking about now is not coming out of the blue. And in its own newspaper, the Klan said that the Republican platform, and this is a quote, reads as if it were written by a Klansman. All right, so that's the backdrop to the very famous speech that Reagan gave at the Neshoba County Fair in uh, outside of Philadelphia, Mississippi, on August 3rd of 1980. And, and the speech itself is important, but you have to understand the context, because in the context of where he was, that is right near where three voting registration workers in the Freedom Summer of 1964 were murdered. So the Freedom Summer of 1964 was when a number of local Mississippians joined with young sort of idealistic people coming from northern towns and cities came down to help register black Mississippians to vote because the Mississippi at the time had the lowest percentage of black people registered in the country. So they go down to Mississippi and they start to organize to vote led by um by Bob Moses to go ahead and and try and get black people to vote. And just as they are organizing to do that, three of the workers who come down disappear. And it's a big deal in the summer. You know, of course, if you're going to register to vote, you know, where did these three guys go? And in August, these three men, James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner, are found in an earthen dam that had been under construction about the time they were murdered. And it turns out that they were assassinated by the Ku Klux Klan, and some of the members of the Ku Klux Klan were actually members of law enforcement, including the local sheriff, a guy named Lawrence Rainey. So... When Reagan is speaking in 1980, he is speaking 16 years after this moment that completely tore up the civil rights movement, terrified people who thought they were going to die, highlighted the idea of states' rights as being a ticket to white supremacy. And this is where Reagan chooses to give a speech in which he says, I believe in states' rights. I mean, that's just this this glaring red flag. And then he goes on to say, I believe in people doing as much as they can for themselves at the community level and at the private level, as perhaps the men who assassinated the three civil rights workers believed. And I believe we've distorted the balance of our government today by giving powers that were never intended in the Constitution to that federal establishment. I mean, in retrospect, it doesn't even look like a dog whistle. It looks like a bullhorn. But look at how that played out. So the Carter campaign immediately responded to that that states' rights speech. Carter's only African-American cabinet member, who was Health and Human Services Secretary Patricia Harris, said that 
within Reagan's comments, she said she saw, quote, a specter of white sheets. The Carter surrogate Andrew Young also weighed in on this in an op-ed on August 11th in the Washington Post. He wrote, traditionally, these code words have been the electoral language of Wallace, Goldwater, and the Nixon Southern strategy. So one must ask, is Reagan saying that he intends to do everything he can to turn the clock back to the Mississippi justice of 1964? Do the powers of the state and local governments include the right to end the voting rights of black citizens? Would Reagan dare to commission, directly or indirectly, the sheriff Rainies and the vigilantes to ride once again, poisoning the political process with hatred and violence? And then Carter went on. First of all, he tried to to criticize him sort of genteelly. And then finally, he goes in front of a meeting of Black Southern leaders at the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, which is where the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. had been uh, a minister. And he went was speaking actually there with the Reverend King's father in in attendance along with um, Dr. King's widow. And against the advice of his team, he actually said what he thought. And he said, You've seen in this campaign the stirrings of hate and the rebirth of code words like states' rights in a speech in Mississippi, in a campaign reference to the Ku Klux Klan relating to the South. That is a message that creates a cloud on the political horizon. Hatred has no place in this country. Racism has no place in this country. Daddy King says in his book, nothing that a man does makes him lower than when he allows himself to hate anyone. Hatred is not needed, he says, to stamp out evil. Despite what some people have taught, people can accomplish all things God wills in this world. Hate cannot. And yet, what we basically just saw there is what really would have passed, I mean, aside from Reagan's comments, passed for an even-handed political give and take. And yet, three days later, the press corps weighs in. And they ask, Mr. President, in Atlanta on Tuesday, you referred to Ronald Reagan's campaign statements about the Ku Klux Klan and states' rights, and then you said that hatred and racism have no place in this country. Do you think that Reagan is running a campaign of hatred and racism? And how do you answer allegations that you are running a mean campaign, which just the phrase in and of itself, says racism is bad. The com- those kinds of comments are racist. That has no place in our country. He's running a mean campaign. Yeah, that gets turned into this is all about you're being mean to us. I mean, you're literally giving a speech in Philadelphia, Mississippi, 16 years after the murder of those three freedom summer workers to register black voters. And when you say, hey, you shouldn't be doing that because you're raising the specter of what happened to them, the response is, you're being mean. <laughs> Hysterics and mean. I mean, just the vocabulary here is is quite something. And Carter... Carter backs down. He says, no, I don't think he's running a campaign of racism or hatred. And I think my campaign is very moderate in its tone. I did not raise the issue of the Klan, nor did I raise the issue of states' rights. That's fair. And I believe that it's best to leave these words, which are code words to many people in our country who suffer from discrimination in the past, out of the election this year. And then he says, I do not think that my opponent is a racist in any degree. But a New York political columnist condemned Carter and said that his criticism of Reagan had crossed a line. 
There is a growing feeling that Carter is trying to be too shrewd, too clever and calculating, and that in his confusion of ends and means, he is negating the principles and ideals that helped bring him to the White House in the first place. A columnist for Time went on to say, the wrath that escaped Carter's lips about racism and hatred when he prays and poses as the epitome of Christian charity leads even his supporters to protest his, and there's that word again, meanness. meanness. And that's what I was going to say about the the earlier um, New York Times commentator who's talking about um, Carter being too shrewd and too clever and calculating in that same passage. He says that there are many people who are deeply disappointed by the mean and cunning antics of his campaign. Mean. He's a meanie. He's not conducting, in a sense, a morally proper campaign as he is objecting to racism. So Nancy Reagan also responded, saying in a campaign ad, I deeply, deeply resent and am offended by the attacks that President Carter has made on my husband, the personal attacks that he's made on my husband, his attempt to paint my husband as a man he is not. Now, again, there you have a classic setup of, I'm going to say something outrageous, and then when you push back and say, hey, what you said was outrageous— the answer is going to be, you're being mean to me. So it's this dynamic of, I'm going to bully somebody, and when I'm called out on it, I'm going to play the victim. We are kind of keep repeating the word mean over and over again because it's such a pointed example of what we're talking about here, of people acting as though they're victimized for being called out for precisely what they did. Perhaps a, a strikingly extreme example of this happens during a primetime interview on ABC when Barbara Walters, and, and, you know, we all, many of us probably remember how much she, you know, was famous for getting people to cry and calling people out in various ways in her interviews. She says to Carter, she asks him to answer for the way that he had become so, quote, mean, vindictive, hysterical, and on the point of desperation. And, you know, by the way, much of the context on this 1980 election comes from Rick Perlstein. He wrote a great book on Barry Goldwater and then a great book on Nixon. This is from his Reaganland, America's Rightward Turn. And he's really good at setting scenes. So he's a great person to look for if you're trying to look at the context of a period. So all that, to me, then, raises the question of why. Why in the 1980s, why did people accept this, well, old, as you point out, but new style of bullying politics? And how did it become the norm? It's not surprising to say that politics and culture sort of refract off of each other, reflect each other in one way or another. We're looking at the sort of swaggering politics of, of bullying and dominance. When you look at the culture of that time as well, you see so many echoes of the same kinds of values, the same kind of swagger. I mean, just really briefly to look at some of the biggest money makers in the early 80s, you know, you look at blockbuster films like October 1982, you get the Sylvester Stallone vehicle First Blood, which has within it Rambo, the Vietnam veteran John Rambo, who basically is persecuted by a vindictive sheriff and then resorts to a kind of one-man vigilantism to attack the people who are attacking him. You have the reprise, you have once again a, the Dirty Harry series of movies with Clint Eastwood as a vigilante San Francisco policeman. There you have a famous sort of phrase that comes out of this 
movie, Sudden Impact, in which he aims his 44 Magnum at a criminal's head and says, Go ahead. Make my day. You have on TV the A-Team with the ever-famous Mr. T about four Vietnam vets framed for a crime who become vigilantes. You have Magnum P.I. starring Tom Selleck as a Vietnam vet and private investigator who's investigating crime again independently. Again and again and again, you have these sort of swaggering vigilante types who in these movies are standing up for a very clearly defined, all in capital letters, thing that is right. And they are there because they have been persecuted. One of my favorite things about Rambo is he complains that he, when he came home from Vietnam, he is spat on by protesters. He says, Nothing is over! Nothing! You just don't turn it off! It wasn't my war! You asked me, I didn't ask you! And I did what I had to do to win, but somebody wouldn't let us win! And I come back to the world, and I see all those maggots at the airport protesting me, spitting, calling me baby killer and all kinds of vile crap. Who are they to protest me, huh? Who are they? Unless they've been me and been there and know what the hell they're yelling about. And what was interesting about that is that we this becomes such an article of faith that the returning Vietnam vets were spat on when they came back and were protested when they came back, that it it became part of the popular culture lexicon. And yet it never happened. It actually is talked about in the Rambo movies, but there was not a widespread movement to spit on returning soldiers at all. But it becomes part of, you know, those people hate us and therefore we have to take matters into our own hands. We are victimized. We are victimized. And thus have to stand up for justice. That idea of a certain kind of masculinity. And and a visible representation of it is part of what we're talking about here, right? That you're, Just as you're saying, Heather, that example of a kind of masculinity and in all of these movies and TV shows, visibly showing it to people so that you can watch it and you can see it and you can feel it. There's a power to that. And that kind of display, there's a similar display in modern times that both you and I thought of a lot in that same vein. Yes, and and I do want to get to that. I do want to point out that this is not the only historical form of American masculinity. This hyper-individual, I'm going to go and take on people with my gun outside outside of the law is very much a product of a certain kind of time. There are other versions of American masculinity that were about teamwork and building stuff together and and nobody taking the lead. You think about World War II, the GI, the whole point was you couldn't tell them apart, but they were a team. And now you have this hyper-masculinity in which you have men going out and, and writing their own way in the world with a gun by bullying. They're defending justice with violence, and it's all good. And it's a myth, of course. And it's but an it, absolute myth. <laughs> but it does set up yes. this dynamic. It sets up, there's a personal dynamic in these movies. There's certainly a, a personal dynamic that they're pulling from. But now, after the 1980s, there becomes a political dynamic. You can read on this gaslighting. It's it's not what you actually see. It's what I'm telling you you see. You can see the, the dominance or the bullying politics of a certain kind of politician. In this case, a faction of the Republican Party that's going to come to dominate the Republican Party over the Democrats. 
And this begins in the 1980s, and it's going to continue until uh, we get, and, and I think what we were going for with the buildup of the dominance, the gender dominance, the extraordinary demonstration of the candidate, Donald Trump, both exerting his dominance over immigrants when he comes down that escalator in June of 2015 when he's going to announce that he's running for president. What does he do? He starts out by denigrating Mexican immigrants. And throughout his campaign, he repeatedly illustrates his dominance over people of color, over handicapped people, and certainly over women. And that becomes part of his, and in some ways remains part of his appeal. So that even as people who are opposed to him step forward and say, that's horrible. How can you say that? People who support him say, yeah, he's kind of a a one guy team out on his own, sort of standing up for what's right and really showing manhood by saying what he believes in that kind of a way. So that behavior that seemingly is not supposed to be just and right becomes very strong political fodder. So there was that debate between, in 2016, between candidate Donald Trump and candidate Hillary Clinton. And that so thoroughly illustrated the overlap between the personal, interpersonal dynamic and the political dynamic. When he followed her around stage, he breathed behind her. He he tried to physically dominate her as well as politically dominate her. And it was a it was a really, as you say, incredibly visual illustration of this political dynamic that had been growing for the previous 36 years. What struck me, again, as someone who's interested in cultural history, was the way in which you knew what was happening, even if you weren't really thinking about it. And, you know, you weren't didn't necessarily have to be sitting there and thinking, well, look what display he's making on that stage. It just looked uncomfortable. It was unsettling. And it was very clearly sending a message in such a powerful way that, I would bet that most of the people listening to us right now remember what that looked like because it was it was so visual and and kind of so guttural in its impact. So here's though what I would like to get back to and that's the 1850s with regard to this dynamic of political rhetoric that we've identified and, and you know we we really highlighted that one moment in the 1980s when you had Reagan giving a really obvious speech in retrospect Carter going ahead and saying, hold on a second there. And everybody's saying, you're being mean. I mean, that was like this red flag of here we go. And you can think of the many, many examples since that where where a politician has looked at a camera and said, I didn't do whatever it was that that politician had exactly just then done. But in the 1850s, when this happened, the situation became such that the white enslavers who were dominating the Democratic Party basically thought they, should, they could get away with everything, with anything, including beating up another senator from the other side on the floor of the Senate and that they would get away with it. And they did for a very long time. They got away with it. They were It was seen as sometimes unfortunate, sometimes part of the game. It's what happens. Sometimes as justified because the person committing the act of violence in some way had been insulted so that that kind of act, even though it violates congressional protocol and in depending on the severity of the attack is against the law, still 
in one way or another is justified. They thought that they could get away with it because they did get away with it for a very, very long time. And you know the next word I'm going to say. Until? Until the Northerners basically, partly on their own uh, volition, partly because their constituents were electing people to Congress to stand up and fight in a different kind of a way. There's an anecdote that's in my book that just still gives me the chills when I think about it. And it's a Massachusetts congressman who, um, after the caning of Sumner, was headed back to Washington from Massachusetts. And a group of his constituents meet him at the train station and give him a gift as he's going back to Washington. And it was a gun. And engraved on the gun were the words, free speech. His constituents were literally telling him to go fight and arming him for that battle. The reason that I wanted to call that out is because after the fight over the debt ceiling, it's been interesting to watch people finally calling out this rhetorical pattern that we have lived with now for two generations. And people saying, as we are, wait a minute here, what Schumer was doing was stating a fact. And the idea that somehow that was being mean is itself a power dynamic that it's time to call out. And They called it out not only over the debt ceiling crisis, but over so many of the things that have happened lately where the Republicans have simply said, no, we're not going to have anything to do with that. And then the press has called out the Democrats for their negotiations, saying, oh, they're they're falling behind on this, they're doing this. And it's like, wait a minute, half of the, the team is not playing here. They are literally bullying the other half and refusing to play. And finally, you are seeing the press starting to recognize that it's not always a question of both sides, that that concept of both sides does, in fact, let bullies dominate the conversation. It makes them perfectly equivalent to the people being bullied. It suggests that there is an even-handed both sides mode of politics going on right now, and there isn't. There's an imbalance. There's two different kinds of politics being conducted on national and local levels, but still, one side is behaving by different, according to different rules, and that matters. And that can't be both sides. That has to be looked at for what it is. It's a power dynamic, and it's a power dynamic that has to be recognized and named for what it is and explained for what it is. And it's kind of a perfect time for this particular episode to drop. Chuck Schumer is scheduled to bring up the Freedom to Vote Act, which is another great example of an imbalance where the Republican Party is saying, you know, how dare you go ahead and try and restore a level playing field to voting? And it'll be interesting to see how the press responds to that, whether they buy the both sides, oh, the the Democrats want to pass this law and the Republicans don't, when in fact what is actually at stake is the right of Americans to vote. It is not an either-or situation here. And that's the ultimate bottom line of what we're talking about here today, is that democracy on a certain fundamental level requires some kind of an even playing field. It requires free and fair elections. And granted, you can go throughout American history and see many elections that were not seemingly free and fair. But the system itself is aimed in that direction. There's not entrenched, an entrenched lack of freeness and fairness. So what we're talking about when we're talking about voting rights is we're talking about an even playing field. We're talking about not one side bullying and dominating and the other side caving so that 
things will go along and there won't be any conflict. We're talking about the need for both sides to be able to compete evenly with each other and for one or the other side to lose. In an, in an even-handed politics, one side does not always win. And part of that depends on getting away from that rhetoric of bullying politics. Bullies count on being able to bully without being called on it. And so in a way, what matters is how we respond to the bullies. Our conversation continues for members of Cafe Insider. Heather and I take you behind the scenes of each episode in a special segment of Now and Then that we call Backstage. So join us backstage and get an inside look at the thoughts we're wrestling with as we prep for our weekly conversations. Head to cafe.com slash history to join. And for a limited time, get 50% off the annual membership with a special code, history. That's cafe.com slash history. And the discount code is history. That's it for this episode of Now and Then. If you like what we do, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. Your hosts are Joanne Freeman and Heather Cox Richardson. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The editorial producer is David Kurlander. The audio producer is Matthew Billy. The Now and Then theme music was composed by Nat Wiener. The cafe team is Adam Waller, David Tadashore, Sam Ozer-Staten, Noah Azalai, and Jake Kaplan. Now and Then is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network.